Take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17 this morning. Matthew chapter 17 is a wonderful chapter in God's Word because there are really three great things that happen in it. Matthew 17 is where we see the Lord go on the Mount of Transfiguration. Just a few of the uh, disciples are there with Him. There's great conversation that takes place there and there are certainly wonderful lessons to be learned there. And uh, I think probably the one that speaks the loudest to me is how tempting it is sometimes to let the peripheral things in the Christian life, good things, kind of distract us. When you remember how it was Peter that looked up and when Jesus was being transfigured, he said, it's good for us to be here. Let us make a, a temple for Moses and for Elias and, and, uh, and one for you, Jesus. And it's like God shut all doubt out when he said, no, this is my son. This is the one that deserves your worship. And it's easy for us to be distracted in those types of situations. Uh, sometimes we come to church for a preacher because we enjoy hearing a certain preacher. Uh, we look forward to hearing one preacher, maybe more than another preacher. But the reason we come to church is not because of the preacher. The reason we come to church is because Jesus and uh, we ought to be careful not to build many temples in our life and put men in a better position than they really are. Even the best man is just a man at best. And so we ought to remember that. And that's a great lesson. And there's a wonderful story to be had on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then you come down to another what I consider to be one of the greatest healing miracles of Jesus's ministry. As a father comes to him and he says, Lord, you've got to help me. For my son is a lunatic. And my dad has said for many years, that's his life verse. But this boy was grievously vexed with the devil. And this devil would, uh, was really, it seems, trying to cause uh, him to take his own life. The Bible tells us that many times this devil had caused the boy to throw himself into a fire. And even, even into the water and maybe try to drown himself. And, and the father was battling this. And he brought him to Jesus. He said, I tried to bring him to your disciples. But they were not capable of taking care of the problem. So I brought him to you. And there's a wonderful lesson in that story. As Jesus says, yes, this, uh, I'll take care of this problem. And he teaches a lesson to his disciples there. He says, this kind. There's certain miracles in the Christian life that are only obtained through prayer and fasting. It says, this kind cometh not out about, but by prayer and fasting. And there's a great lesson there. And at the end of the chapter, where we're going to spend our time, there is a miracle that in context, in comparison to the other two amazing stories we've already seen in the Bible in this particular chapter, it seems quite minuscule. It doesn't get much uh, of the glory and not much attention is paid to it. But I think that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. I don't just think that the Bible says that. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable. And so while we could spend hours and hours and days and days studying the Mount of Transfiguration and maybe even look at this wonderful miracle of this, this young man being healed by Jesus from this grievous devil. This morning I want to look at maybe a bit more of, a, of a, a, an obscure story in God's word and see if we can't learn something from that. Verse number 24 of Matthew chapter 17, the Bible says... And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. 
And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him. Prevented him there could also mean confronted him. Saying, what thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of the strangers? Or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, of strangers. Jesus, Jesus saith unto him, then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go look to the sea and cast an hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that that take and give unto them for me and thee. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the time we've gathered around your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would not come to your word and not receive anything from it. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the scriptures to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help me, as I've already prayed in private, I'll also pray in public, Lord. I need your help to preach this sermon. Lord, this message is not mine, it is yours. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless it in that way. Help every heart in this room to kind of put the things outside of church and outside of the important things of their spiritual life on hold for a moment as we try to learn and glean from your word what your will for our life is. We pray in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now to recap a little bit the story that's gone on, Jesus and his disciples find themselves in Capernaum. And it would seem that Peter was off doing something by himself or maybe in a group of disciples. But either way, we've, we kind of get the idea that Jesus was not with them. These men come to him. They are collecting tribute. This is not a normal tribute or a tax that we would be accustomed to. You remember in the Bible where uh, Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And we Remember that because it speaks of uh, a Christian's responsibility to support the government and tax. But this was not a governmental tax. This was a Jewish tax. They called it the temple tax. And these men were come to collect tribute for this temple tax. And they approach Peter. And I, I think this is unique. They approach Peter to ask about Jesus's responsibility. And they say to Peter, hey, Peter, does your master, the one you've been following, does he pay this tribute? Peter says, oh, of course. Huh, yeah. It's like he doesn't even hesitate at all. Yes, of course he pays the tax. Doesn't everyone? And as soon as he enters in the house, this is how Jesus, we know, we see several times throughout Scripture, that Jesus maintained his omniscience, even in, even in human flesh, he confronts Peter, not being a part of the previous conversation, but as soon as Peter comes into the house, Jesus prevents him. He stands in front of him, confronts him about the matter and says, hey, Peter, I've got a question for you. Do the kings of this world tax their own children or do they tax strangers in their kingdom they've never met? And Peter obviously knew the answer to the question. He says, well, they tax strangers. He says, that's right, Peter. Nevertheless, what we'll do is I want you to go down to the sea and I want you to cast a hook in the sea and I want you to catch a fish. Lest we should offend them, we will pay this tax. And it may not seem like a significant story, but, but from my life, I know I've learned a few lessons on fishing trips. I've learned that fishing gets boring sometimes, especially when you're not catching. 
I've heard an old saying, that's why they call it fishing, not, not catching. Well, when you discover how to catch, you let me know, because I'm in on that trip. I'm much more of a catcher than a fisherman. And so I've learned a lot of lessons on a fishing trip. And I think that Peter here learns a, a few great lessons on fishing trips. In fact, speaking of lessons on a fishing trip, the other day uh, for our Christmas break uh, or Christmas vacation, me and my wife and Charlie and Amanda, we went up to visit my in-laws and he had chartered a coastal fishing trip for us. I'd been looking to it for quite a long time. I don't get to fish as much as I'd like, and I definitely don't get to fish in coastal waters. I'd never fished in the coast of North Carolina, so I was very excited. The whole time, though, from the very moment he told me about the trip, I was fearful that we would be going fishing in 30-degree weather in North Carolina. I mean, after all, it was December 27th in North Carolina. Well, it just so worked out that the weather wasn't as bad as what we thought it was going to be. And it was about 55 to 60 degrees all day. We did have to combat a little bit of rain throughout the day. But all in all, it was a pretty nice day to go fishing. So what the plan was is we would wake up on Thursday morning at, I think, 4 o'clock. And we would drive to the coast and we would get there about lunchtime. It's about a four-hour drive down there. We'd get there a little before lunchtime. We'd eat lunch. And then we would go fishing for about four hours. And then we'd hop back in the truck. And we'd come back another four hours. So this was an all-day commitment. I mean, this makes a lot of sense, right? Spend eight hours in a truck to go fishing for four hours. And so that's what we did. And uh, we had a good time. We actually caught some fish. One of the better fishing trips I've ever been on in the coast. And I think we caught about 20 red fish, which was fun. And we caught a few black drum there. And we got to see a dolphin. And I know what, if you're like a true coastal fisherman, you don't, you know, seeing dolphins isn't good news. But I don't get to see that every day. This was awesome. We got to hook a pelican, which was fun. Uh, Let's go fly a kite. Uh, that's kind of what it seemed like. But I mean, we had a good time that day. On the way back, I got to thinking about the day and I just kind of began to run over it in my mind. And, and the thought hit me after we had spent all that money on fuel. We went down there. We didn't have rain jackets, so we went and bought rain jackets. We uh, then had to pay for a charter. Then we uh, go over to his house and we get in coolers and he's cleaned our fish for us. And we pull out, I think, two Ziploc baggies that are, are pretty full of fish fillets. I thought to myself, how smart is it to spend all this money when I know for a fact there is a seafood ref restaurant within 15 minutes of the house and we complain about maybe a $15 plate, I got to thinking, how much do, does each filet cost that we are bringing back? I mean, we have spent all day, three of us on this fishing boat, trying to catch these fish. I thought to myself, I'm sure Sam's sells them a bit cheaper than what we've bought them today. And that was the lesson that I learned on the trip, that really fishing isn't much of an investment, <laughs> but... but I do think there are lessons to be learned on fishing trips. And as I see in this passage, there are lessons to be learned in this fishing trip. And we'll see three of them this morning. Number one, we'll notice a lesson about focus. A lesson about focus. In chapter number 24, as I said in the introduction, I think it's unique that these men that are come to collect this tribute, they come to Peter instead of Jesus. 
This would be like the IRS coming to your children or to your friend to ask about your current tax situation. If, if anybody's to ask anybody about your tax situation, don't you think you ought to be involved in that? But they don't. They come to Jesus instead. And they say, hey, or they come to Peter instead. And they say, Peter, does your master pay this tribute? A few interesting things that I think are helpful as we study this passage. That's clearly in, in chapter 24, the Bible says they were in Capernaum. Capernaum was the home of Peter and Andrew. And it had actually seems to become... A, a headquarters of sorts for Jesus' ministry. Oftentimes they would go out and they would uh, witness and they would spread the gospel and Jesus would go into different synagogues and different places. But oftentimes we find them kind of regathering there in Capernaum. And as I think about Peter returning home and these men coming to Peter, why would they go to him? Well, I would guess that they already knew Peter fairly well. Maybe one of these guys that collected tribute had grown up with Peter. Maybe, maybe they were friends from high school. I don't know. But for one reason or another, they come to Peter. And the question is asked, Peter, does your master pay tribute? Now, I think it's curious that they come to Peter, but even more curious to me is how Peter so affirmatively answers the question. Well, Peter probably had never had this conversation with Jesus. It seems by Jesus' reaction, he never had. So it's unique that they would come to Peter, but even more unique to me is that Peter's immediate response is, oh, of course. Knowing nothing about Jesus' beliefs in this situation, knowing nothing about Jesus' responsibility or his previous actions in this situation, Peter says, yeah, of course, everybody does that. I think the first lesson on focus is there, that there's a temptation to focus on ours. You say, they come to Peter and they say, hey, Peter, what's your master doing? And Peter just assumes that his master does what everybody else does. Oh, of course Jesus does it. Well, why? Because every Jewish man over the age of 20 would do this. It's culturally acceptable. It's uh, traditionally acceptable and appropriate. Of course Jesus does it. But, G but Peter never confronts Jesus and asks him about his beliefs in this matter. You see, where are you going with this, Brother Andrew? I think that this idea that Peter did what was just culturally acceptable is very appropriate for us to understand this morning. Because I think Christians, if we're not careful, can fall into the trap of handling our finances, not biblically, but what is culturally accepted. Amen. You see, Jesus was not bound by the Jewish tradition. Now, this, is a, uh, this particular tax was found in Exodus chapter 30. It was once again reinforced in Nehemiah chapter 10. I mean, this was not outside the bounds of Scripture, but we're talking about a different time period. We're talking about a different situation as Jesus came to fulfill the law by his death on Calvary, and we see this, but Peter's obvious immediate answer is, oh, of course he does. When, when Christians began to handle their finances, what is culturally appropriate, instead of what is biblically right, we get in trouble. And, and, and Christians, uh, just to be frank with you, are no longer consulting the Bible on what is biblically correct, and we are consulting culture on what is right for us. 
You say, give me an example. I'll, I'll tell you this. It seems today that a Christian feels because everybody else has something, we must have it too. It's not okay for us. We feel as if we are somehow neglecting ourselves or we are somehow with, withholding ourselves from a privilege and a comfort. I mean, after all, we live in 21st century America. I mean, look at all we can have. Just because you can have it doesn't mean you should have it, by the way. It's one of the first things we teach our children. Just because there are fruit roll-ups in the pantry doesn't mean you need to have fruit roll-ups right now. And yet we have fallen prey to this idea that as long as everybody else has it, it must mean that we should have it too. It seems like every Christian family, to be happy, has to have two working vehicles, an attached garage to store their treasures in, and by treasures, it's just another word Brother Kevin Gerald uses for junk, by the way. You get to store your treasures in. And it seems like if we don't have Wi-Fi that goes at least 50 megabytes per second, we are not happy. And where do we get this idea that we have to have those cars or we have to have a certain type of house or a certain type of garage or a certain level of Wi-Fi speed? Because that is what's culturally appropriate. Culture has dictated that to us, not the Word of God. The Bible says, having therefore food and raiment, let us therewith to be content. Notice, he doesn't even mention anything about a house over your head. And you say, well, I can't believe God would ever make me just be content with food and raiment. That's why we must consult God's Word. Happiness is not found in your data speed connection. Happiness is not found in the logo that is on your car. Happiness is not found in how much junk you can accumulate. Happiness is found in the fact that you know God and He is daily providing for your needs. There's a lesson about our focus on ours. But there is also a lesson about our focus of others. Jesus, by his teaching here in the passage, seems to dismiss himself from the responsibility of paying this tax. And we'll get more into that in just a moment. But even though Jesus did not feel as if he needed to pay this tax, I want you to notice in verse 27, the Bible says, "...notwithstanding, lest we should offend them." Now, as Christians, we should not look to others as to their opinion of us being the barometer of the success of our Christian life. Uh, By the way, a lot of people didn't like Jesus, but Jesus was the perfect Christian. But while we should not depend on the opinion of others, their opinion matters. You can't be the Christian that just says, I don't care what they think about me. No, what they care about you directly affects your ability to minister to them. If they think you're a hypocrite, they're not going to listen. If they think you're just somebody that just beats them down all the time, their opinion of you matters. And so when you study God's word, you'll find more often than not, Jesus avoided controversy and strife in order to win some with the gospel. 
Jesus went into the synagogues to a bunch of hypocrites and a bunch of lawyers and a bunch of scribes and he debated with them. But even when he debated with them, they marveled because of the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. What we must understand is if their opinion of us is not one of at least respect for our stance, they will never hear the message that we actually have. The Bible says, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Only let your conversation or your manner of life be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Oh, their opinion of you matters. The Apostle Paul understood this principle quite well. He said, I have become all things to all men that I may win some. He says, to them that are under the law, I put myself under the law. To those that are without the law, I was without the law. To the Jews, I became a Jew. To those that were weak, I became weak. That I might win some. Their opinion of you matters. And we cannot become so focused on the things that we have or, 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 or us always being the person that is right. We must understand that the things that we have are not as important as the things we're storing up in heaven. And you can think that the most, the, the most wonderful thing you can send ahead is money, but I don't know how good money is in heaven. I mean, after all, you're walking on streets of gold. So it's going to take a lot of Benjamins for you to buy a driveway. What's the best thing you can lay up and store in heaven? It's souls. There's nothing more important. There's nothing more valuable. There is much rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that cometh to repentance. There's nothing more important than that. So every... Every focus of the Christian life, all of our focus in the Christian life must be, how am I winning others? There's a lesson on focus. I want you to see, secondly, there's a lesson about finances. The temptation is when I throw out that F word there, we just turn me off. (laughs) You got to be careful with the F words you use in church, right? Finances is definitely one of those. But don't turn me off right now. There's a lesson for us here in Scripture. This had to seem as craziness to Peter as Jesus instructs him what to do. And there's three really lessons here about finances. Number one, the first lesson is that God provides. He just provides. Could you imagine explaining to Peter, Hey, Peter, I want you to go down to the sea. I want you to cast into the sea and I want you to bring up a fish. And that fish is going to have a coin in his mouth. And even today, by the way, the type of fish and the reason why it would have the money in its mouth is extremely debated, almost to the point of humor. I mean, people will say, well, it couldn't have been this type of fish for they're a plankton eater and there would have been no way to catch it on a hook. And this type of fish uh, had no scales. So that might be why uh, a catfish had no scales. So that might be why Jesus instructed him to open the mouth because the mouth had to be open. He would have normally just thrown that fish right back. And, and maybe it was a, another type of, are you kidding me right now? As silly as this must have sounded to Peter, I like the fact that Peter just does what, he's, what the Lord told him to. And there is an obvious lesson here that God provides for his children. 
If you look in Scripture, you'll find that we are to not be covetous and we're to be content with such things as we have. For he hath said, he will never leave us nor forsake us. In Psalm chapter 23, verse 1, the Bible says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Our want is directly linked to the value that we place on the shepherd. Even uh, in Hebrews where it tells us, let us be content with such things as we have, for he's going to provide everything anyway. No, no, it doesn't say that. It says, for he hath said, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Our contentment cannot be in things. Our contentment must be in the fact that the one who gives the things has promised he will always be there for us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We don't have to want because we have the shepherd. He knows where the green pastures are. He knows where the still waters are. He knows when we need to lie down. We trust the shepherd, not the stuff. The lesson is the Lord provides. The second lesson is the Lord provides enough. It's unique that Peter was not even, be at, was not even asked if he pays the, this tax... Jesus was the one in question here, but you'll find in verse 27, when Jesus instructs Peter, the lesson, uh, the lesson is, Peter, you go find this fish. The amount of money, the coin in its mouth, will be worth enough to pay for me and you. Amen. The Lord provides enough. David said it like this, I have been young and now I am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. I like the way somebody put it to me just this week. Oh, I've had some lean times. Oh, there's been some times when I was eating some ramen. But the Lord has never forsaken me. And if, if we would look at our life, we'll look back over our life and see that God never left us. And there was always enough. The Lord provides, the Lord provides enough. And then thirdly, the Lord provides enough because of faith. You see, the way Jesus handles money is quite different than the way we handle money. Not many financial uh, uh, advice givers, not many financial managers would agree with the way that Jesus instructs his children to handle their money. In fact, the Bible tells us here in verse 27, I think that not only does financial managers disagree with Jesus, I would say that Peter disagreed with Jesus. Verse 27, lest, lest we should offend them. Go to the sea. I want you to notice this. This is significant. And cast and hook. Do you remember what Peter was doing when Jesus first found him? He was fishing. More importantly, though, he was mending his nets. Peter was a commercial fisherman. I mean, only hobbyist fish with a single hook. Even now they have a thing called an Alabama rig that looks like a, an umbrella coming through the water with about a dozen hooks on it. I mean, you throw that bad boy, you're just going to accidentally hook something. It could be a boot. It could be a TV. You're going to get something. Why would Jesus instruct Peter to cast an hook? Well, it's because all the things that Jesus instructs us to do involve our faith. Peter, probably on his way to the sea, said, 
well, if I could just find a net, this would probably be a much better trip. If I could just find a net, maybe I'd get a boat. I mean, I have some buddies. We, uh, you know, I have some connections from my past. Maybe we could go out a little ways. We'll launch out a little bit and we'll fish all night and probably not catch anything, by the way. (laughs) Jesus was their fish finder in that situation, right? But the whole time, I'm sure Peter was saying, why is he having me cast a single hook at the edge of the sea? I mean, if you've ever met a fisherman that owns a boat, you'll find that a fisherman will drive miles and miles passing over fish after fish because they think there's a fish somewhere else. I'll never forget one day, me and JT, we went out to Squall Creek, uh, and uh, that's the lake out there in Glen Rose. It's got the nuclear uh, uh, power plant on it, and so uh, the fish kind of glow a little bit when you bring them up from the bottom, but... But me and JT went out there, and I'll never forget this. It was so embarrassing. I had my bass boat. I was real proud of my bass boat. I had a 10-inch TV here to tell me where the fish were. I had a 7-inch TV on the front to tell me where the fish were. I had a, a trolling motor that you could just hit a button, and it just keeps you there because it locks onto the you know GPS satellites. And, man, you're stuck there. I mean, I was proud of my boat. Me and JT, we told all day out there. I'll never forget the game warden showed up. JT had just done giving up. He was already sitting in the seat. I mean, it had been hot, been long. We ended up catching one fish, and it wasn't even a bass. We caught a drum, which is like a trash fish. And uh, I threw it back, and the game warden didn't even ask JT. for his, you know, JT didn't have his license. The game warden was like, don't worry about it. You weren't fishing anyway. <laughs> I mean, th- this is a real thing. So I'm like, man, I guess the fish just weren't biting today. We come back to the boat ramp. I think the lake closes at 4 p.m. You have to be back to the boat ramp by that time. One of the most embarrassing things I've ever been a part of took place on that day. We pull back up to the boat ramp, and there is these three folks sitting in lawn chairs fishing right by the boat ramp. And I watch them, and they catch a fish right while we're pulling up. And I'm like... Guess they just kind of got lucky. I mean, obviously the barometric pressure's not right. I mean, the TV didn't show me where the fish were today. I mean, I guess the fish are just in hiding today. They're witness protection program. They're not here. I'll never forget, they get this fish off their hook and they pull their stringer up out of the water and they've got like 12 fish. (laughs) Never left the boat ramp. I'm sure that was Peter's thinking, oh, if I just get a boat, I'll get a net. I mean, Jesus probably knows what he's talking about, but I mean, Jesus isn't a fisherman. I mean, he's a carpenter. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. And I'm the expert fisherman here. I think the lesson here is that even when we might disagree with Jesus, Jesus is always right. You say, Brother Andrew, I've been handling my finances a certain way for years and years and years. Peter had been fishing a certain way for years and years and years. And he said, Jesus says, come unto me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is, uh, the, the way that we follow Jesus is wholehearted. It's discipleship. It's master, you say what you want us to do and we will do it. We find that Peter follows the Lord in faith. And because of that, He finds the fish. Matthew chapter 6 verse 31 instructs the Christian how to deal with finances in this world. By the way, did you know you must have finances to live in this world? Preacher said you can't take it with you. He said this, I think it was last Wednesday night at the conclusion of his sermon. I've heard him say it several times now recently. He said you can't take it with you, but it's about the only place you can go without it. 
The question isn't whether or not Christians should have money. The, the question is, when Christians have money, how should they handle it? And the best instruction is found in Matthew chapter 6, verse, 30, uh, verse 31. The Bible says, Take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewith shall we be clothed? For all these things do the Gentiles seek after. For your heavenly Father knoweth ye have need of these things already. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, the clothes, the eat, the drink, all of these things shall be added unto you. It's the financial advice of Jesus. Make heaven your priority. Your finances will fall in line. And I'm not up here preaching a wealth and prosperity gospel. I heard of a famous preacher located south of here in a big town south of here. Starts with an H. You probably know him if I said his name, but I'm not going to do that. (laughs) And I heard a story this week about how he said he got pulled over by a, a police officer and the police officer recognized his last name on his driver's license and he just let him go. And he said, because of that, that was God's blessing on my life. No, that police officer just knew you had 70,000 people that could attack him at any given moment. I mean, you're their pastor. Look, I'm not saying it's that way, but what I'm saying is when you handle your money like Jesus asks you to handle your money, you will be blessed. There's a lesson here in focus. There's a lesson here in finances. And thirdly, there's a lesson about family. You see, Jesus uses an interesting comparison here. Verse 26, when he confronts, uh, verse 25, when he confronts Peter, the question is this, what thinkest thou, Simon? What thinkest thou? What do you think about this? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Now, the taxes in this day were not handled Uh, the way that we pay taxes today, and and maybe a little bit they are, but but really the taxes of that day was what allowed the king or the ruler of the area to live in such splendor. You remember there was a lot of nations and civilizations whose countries were struggling and people were begging in the streets, but the king never had that problem. Because the king could live a luxurious lifestyle because of the tax that was imposed upon the people. And the question here is, hey, Peter, where do you think the king gets all that money to shower his family and all the goodness that this world has to provide? Do you think he sends a tax collector down the hall one night to his son's bedroom and knocks on the door and says, hey, son, a king of the sun, you, you prince, do Do you, have you paid your taxes yet? No, the whole goal for the tax was that his children and his family would be provided for in a luxurious way. Peter understood this concept. So when Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you think the king taxes his own son or do you think he taxes strangers? The lesson here is very obvious. Remember, I told you earlier that this was the temple tax. That started at the tabernacle in the wilderness as Moses instructed it. It went to the first, uh, the, the rebuilding of the temple in Nehemiah. And now we find here we're at Herod's temple and they're still continuing this tax. And, and, and the question is asked, uh, hey, hey, is Jesus paying this tax? What is the temple? 
Well, it's God's house. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, if this is God's house, aren't I God's son? It was just a chapter earlier that Peter got that answer right, by the way, remember? Whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? Well, some say that you're Elias. And others say that you're Jeremiah. But, but who do you say that I am? And the question was directed to the disciples, by the way. But I love how Peter steps up. Have you ever been in a class when a tough question is answered and you're like, if I just avoid eye contact with the teacher, maybe they won't call on me? Peter was like the overzealous student. That, oh, call on me, teacher, call on me. Who do you say that I am? Peter? The question was to the disciples, but Peter answered. Not, not, he didn't need to huddle up. He didn't need to, John, this is a tough theological question. Let's, let's get our minds together. No, no, no. Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And because Peter's answer was right, I think Jesus reminds him of that right here. Jesus says, hey, Peter, who am I? Well, you're the son of God. And whose house is this taxed for? Well, it's God's house. So why is the son being taxed? That's the lesson. And by the way, while there might be a lot of people who try to disparage the fact and erode scriptural a truth, Jesus as the son of God is equal with God. Jesus not only had Peter proclaim that he was the son of God, but Jesus himself claimed to be the son of God. Not secondary in authority or position. In fact, what you do is you read all these Bible commentators these days and they think that because they understand Jewish culture and, and the inheritance and all this, they'll try to explain this away. But the people that were present at Jesus' feet when he was teaching, they sought to slay him because by claiming God as his father, he claimed to be equal with God. Jesus claimed to be equal with God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake unto us by the prophets to our fathers, but in these last days has spoken to us by his Son, whom hath created all things. You see, Jesus is the Son of God. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, the Bible says that God saith unto the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. God proclaims that the Son of God is equal with God. And you can have a lot of people in this world tell you otherwise, but if you don't have a right estimation of who Jesus is, your destination will not end up where you want it to be. Jesus, as the Son of God, was the only one capable of taking your sins and dying on the cross. Jesus is the only way to the Father. And through the Son, we have life because we now know the Father. It was because His righteousness was placed upon us that we can have access to the throne room of our Heavenly Father. But it is always through the Son. Jesus built a bridge the only way He could with only three nails and two pieces of wood, Jesus built a bridge to heaven. And it is through the Son that we have life. 
the delight of sons is only experienced through the, the cross of Jesus on Calvary. I want you to see not only the delight of sons, but we close the message as this, the deliverance of sons. I think it's worth at least mentioning that the price that was paid was for Jesus who did not need his price paid, by the way. He says, oh, I don't, I don't have anything to pay. I owe nothing. That is my father's house and I am the son. Kings of this world do not tax their own sons, just like the owner of this house does not expect his own son to pay. But Jesus paid the price for not only him, but for Peter as well. Friend, there's no way you could have paid the price that your sin required you to pay. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is the condemnation that men came in, that light came into the world and men loved their darkness rather than they loved light because their deeds were only evil continually. You see, it, our debt was more than what we could pay. It was so much bigger than what you could work through. Uh, somebody might suggest that the Old Testament saints were saved by keeping the, the law or by somehow working their way. Listen to me. If one man could work his way to heaven, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? If one can do it, all could do it. Jesus had to die because the weight of our sin was too much. And God sent his son that we might be made righteousness in him. We might be made righteous because of the deeds that he had done. The deliverance of son is Jesus paying a price he did not owe for people that owed a price they could not pay. The deliverance of sons, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Several years ago, uh, when I was just about six or, or seven years ago, uh, when I was about six or seven years old, my dad, I, I hung out with my dad all the time. I went everywhere with dad. And this stuck out to me because I believe it was the first time I'd ever gone inside of a bank. We went down here to First Financial Bank and my dad had some business to take care of. I believe he was speaking to the president of the bank. And so they took me and they set me in this little kind of conference room area. And this stuck out to me because it was wonderful. This little girl came to me and she said, hey, uh, Andrew, we have some cookies. Would you like a cookie? Don't ask a six and seven year old kid if they want a cookie. Of course I want a cookie. She then came back, and this was my favorite part. She said, we can get you anything you want to drink. We have a Dr. Pepper fountain, if you'd like. <laughs> a Dr. Pepper fountain? Just Yeah, can you just like show me where it is? I'll put my mouth under it. You just push the button. And that day, while Dad was taking care of business, I'll never forget. She kept bringing me Dr. Pepper after Dr. Pepper. I had cookie after cookie. By the time I got back there, man, I was all jacked up on whatever they had been giving me. And I told my dad, I said, Dad, they treated me like a king. You know what's strange is I did not have a cent in that bank. I had no checking account. I didn't get that until I was about 12. My name was not listed on any ledger there. But because my dad's name was, 
I was somebody. And I received the grace of the bank and I received the gifts of the bank, not because of what I had done or what I had to offer, but because of what he had done. You see, that's the way that Jesus offers a sonship. You see, to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. We don't deserve a place in heaven, but we have a place in heaven because of what he's done. My name was not listed on any type of glorious account in heaven, but because Jesus' name was there, I am now a joint heir with Jesus because I am a son of God. This morning there might be somebody in this room that has never prayed and asked God to save them. Did you know this morning that the only thing standing in the way of you becoming a child of God is simply asking Him to save you? Don't leave this room today before it's everlasting too late Trust in the Son, and he that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life.